Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore all things assistive reproductive technology. My name is Ellen Trackman. I'm here with my co-host, Jennifer White. Yay, I'm here. Hooray. Uh, Ellen, I have a question for you today. Yeah, ready. It's very, very, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because we have a very serious and important topic today. And I, I don't mean that in a joking way because I know that people think I'm joking half the time. But truly, we do. Um, which of these is considered a risk factor that may contribute toward a woman getting cancer? Ooh, okay. You ready? Do I get to, I give I get to multiple choice? choice. Okay. Multiple choice. <coughs> Family <laughs> history. Yes, definitely. Never giving birth. Ooh. Being over the age of 50. Or all of the above. Well, um, so I'm. I know family history for sure. And B, I have heard that about um, having children is supposed to reduce your risk. That's exactly why I had children. Okay, maybe <laughs> maybe other reasons. That's why you had four, um, so that you could keep bringing down the risk. Is that what it yeah, is? <laughs> right. So so it's got to be all of the above. It is all of the above. I actually did not know about the the giving birth part, so uh, that was something I learned new today. So yay, always oh. growing, always learning. Oh, that's not why you had a child. Hmm. It is not specifically why I had a child. That is correct. Okay. Um. So next question: Which of the following is not a symptom of ovarian cancer? Hmm. Okay. Bloating, urinary urgency, low back pain, or increased appetite. I do not know a lot about ovarian cancer. Um, I mean, I guess the uh, increased appetite, just because I, you know, am hungry all the time. But I have no idea. That is correct. So Woo. the fact that you want to eat all the time yes, does not mean that you have cancer. So you're okay. you're doing well here. Great. All right. This one does not have a multiple choice though. So you're you're gonna have a harder time oh, on this no. last one here. Okay. Ugh. The proportion of U.S. women who should have annual pap smears who actually report having one within three years is approximately what percentage? Oh, but they're self-reporting? So it's not like... Self-reporting. It's not just like the people who should have it who are having it. It's like people who should have it are reporting it. I'm assuming it is self-reported. I did not check my source in that regard. So... I mean, I feel like we we don't always do what we're supposed to do, but we probably say we do. So... 60? 60%? I actually was impressed. It says 80%. So even if 80% of people are not actually doing it, (laughs) um, they at least know that they're supposed to be doing it, So, which I think is good towards education, right? Right, right. There you go. And I mean, that's really the key is that, you know, first you have to get into people's consciousness about education. And I will say that that's something that we talk about today and to kind of lead into our interview is we talked to Joyce about education on preserving fertility when you do have cancer. Right. And I mean, some people might think assisted reproductive technology and cancer, what's the connection? But there is really um, this huge overlap about fertility preservation that when someone finds out they have cancer, um, they're often presented, you should start treatment right away, but you can delay for a few weeks if you want to you know, um, have your eggs retrieved, for example, which can be a very costly and um, not altogether pleasant experience. And it's hard to make right. those decisions when you're suddenly receiving this news. But um, right. when you're already really stressed and terrified for your life. Yeah. yeah. But we are excited today to have the expert in this area who um, is an amazing resource and the executive director of the Alliance for Fertility Preservation, Joyce Reinecke. Welcome, Joyce Reinecke. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us. Um, in order to just dive in, do you want to to say hi and kind of give some background about about yourself? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and being interested in talking about uh, fertility preservation for cancer patients, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, Yeah, so I am currently the executive director of a small organization called the Alliance for Fertility Preservation, and we are focused on raising awareness and also hoping to um, help expand access for cancer patients to fertility preservation 
um, information, resources, and services. Um, That's great and so important. When you say you're small, how how small? What's your reach like? Well, we operate sort of you know virtually across the country, and we um, have part time employees. So we have now um, four people kind of working for us in different capacities. Um, and we have a really great, um, board of directors and medical advisory board. So we do draw on a lot of expertise, um, and a lot of, uh, the clinicians on our board and on the medical advisory side of things, um, you know, are on the oncology side of things and some are on the reproductive side of things. We also have, um, reproductive attorneys, bioethicists. So we have kind of this pool of talent, I think, that we draw on. Um, and in addition to that, we work kind of in a coalition form with other young adult cancer organizations and other infertility organizations on different initiatives across the country. So we sort of try to maximize and amplify our reach um, by partnering up with others. That's great. So what brought, tell us more about yourself. Um, what sure. brought you to this area and kind of what's your, your story related to this? Um, well, I was, um, kind of thrust into this arena, um, in, uh, gosh, 20 years ago, um, I was diagnosed in my twenties with, um, cancer. And so oh. that was quite sudden and scary and out of out of the blue. What, what were you doing before that? So before my diagnosis, I um, had gone to law school and I was working at a law firm in Seattle. Um, and I had just sort of, you know, switched over and was working in trademark law. That sounds super fascinating. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> oh, we like yeah. all this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> trade, trademark law is exciting. Okay. <laughs> I, I loved it. It was a great time. It was a great firm. We, I had moved there. I'd worked in New York for a little, um, for a little bit after law school. I went to law school in New York City at Fordham, and I had been working primarily in insurance law. And then um, my husband's job took us to Seattle, so that was really new and fun and exciting, actually. And I, and I was hired by a great firm there, and so I was kind of training up in this new area. And it was really a boom time. A lot of um, tech companies and small, um, companies were moving and moving up from the Bay area and establishing offices. So we had a lot of new business. So there was a lot of need. I was in a small business group and working on trademark issues for those new clients. So it was, it was kind of an exciting time (laughs) as much as some people might not think so. Uh, And then the cancer diagnosis came from out of the blue, it sounds like. Totally, totally out of the blue. Um, I actually was on a business trip in Washington, D.C. for my new firm. Um, I'd only been working there, you know, for a couple of months and had just passed the Washington bar. And I was um, in Washington, D.C. to do um, some training at the Patent and Trademark Office. And so I was at an event there and started to just really not feel well um, and ended up, you know, at the emergency room at GW Hospital. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And kind of never left. Oh. <laughs> That's how I oh, see really? it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I didn't leave probably for almost two weeks, um, you know, when all was said wow. and done. So oh, my gosh. Was... And how quickly did you did you find out what was going on? Um, pretty quickly, you know, I, it was an interesting kind of plunge into that world. I really had no, you know, experience in having been sick or ever having had surgery and things like that. And so I was, you know, I went into the emergency room and, um, you know, pretty quickly they make these assessments and can see things obviously that I can't see, you know, um, that I was anemic, that, you know, I was, I was very lightheaded. I was feeling faint and and they could see that right away. And then everything just, you know, the wheels start moving and, um, they started to do a bunch of tests and things like that. And, you know, tubes down my nose, looking for bleeding, things like that. Um, so the diagnosis itself though wasn't made until the next day, um, when uh, they had to, you know, get some tests back from pathology and things like that. Wow. Did your, so, but it was pretty sudden. You're out there on your own for travel. Did your husband at that point fly out to DC or you're kind of doing? Yes. Yes. I, I, I consider myself fortunate because I had after I was staying with a friend from college 
um, who was living in DC. And so, um, she was with me and she was the one who said, you know what, we really need to get to the hospital because I was feeling, you know, like I was going to faint. We were online for the movies. And, um, so she drove me to the emergency room and stayed with me and stayed, you know, in my bed and stayed all night. And yeah, so that was really wonderful. And then, yeah, all the calls, of course, she, she made all the calls and called my husband, called my parents who were, you know, out on the West coast for a a conference that my dad was attending. I mean, everybody was like flying in from all over. So yeah, it was really a panic. So then, so what happened? I would say we, you find out 24 hours later and what, what wheels start to spin in every direction? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost hard to remember. It's such a blur. Um, they, you know, I immediately, um, start to get the test results. They start doing CAT scans. They start doing all kinds of testing on me. I also feel fortunate. I want to say that I was at a teaching hospital and, um, I think being, you know, pretty young to have something like this, to have this diagnosis. Um, I, I feel like I got great attention and there were a lot of residents and fellows who would come in every day and pull back my gown and look at me and touch me. <laughs> Everybody's got to take a look. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But I definitely, definitely felt they were looking out for me. And, and sometimes just out of the blue, like a resident or a fellow would come by and they would have literature for me and, you know, have looked up different articles. And um, so that was really kind of a, you know, a positive experience. Um, and in terms of you know, the fertility conversations. And that's yeah. what I was going to ask is what, where, I mean, cause obviously that's what we're, we're talking about right now. Like what yeah. was that on the forefront of your mind? Was that on the forefront of their minds? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think it was on the forefront of anyone's mind. Um, and I will say that I had a lot of visitors. I definitely believe there was a checklist in operation somewhere. And so uh, there were appointments where someone would come by. I talked to psychologists. I talked to um, nutritionists, you know, about what was going to happen after surgery. I talked to people about caring for, you know, my incision. All of these kinds of things seemed to be covered. Um, and I really think it wasn't until I was getting ready to be discharged um, that one of the fellows, uh, actually sat down and and came to my husband and I and said, you know, do you guys understand that if you go forward with this course of treatment that we in the oncology, you know, department have laid out, they really had gone over like what the different medications would be when I would start, you know, chemotherapy. And, um, you know, he really said to us, do, do you understand that there's a a strong likelihood that you will become infertile as a result of this treatment? And so, and it was like an afterthought almost, huh? Wow. Yes. It was a hundred percent. Um, it felt to me, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of the hospital and their protocol, but it was not a formal conversation. It wasn't really scheduled. He seemed to just bring it up. He, he was not, um, you know, a staff oncologist. He was, he was a fellow who was working with, you know, the lead oncologist, um, who we had been meeting with and we had met with them several times to discuss, you know, the chemotherapy plan and all of that. Um, and so, yes, he brought this to our attention and I have to say it was absolutely out of left field, you know, and in all of the literature we had been reading, um, about my diagnosis, which was leiomyosarcoma, Um, and in reading about the different chemotherapeutics that would be used and all of that, um, you know, I'd not come across this in the literature and yeah. And no one, um, really had a plan then. I think he saw how distressed we were and, you know, we asked him, well, what, what can we do about this? And so he really had to say, you know what, let me step out of the room and figure this out. And and so he didn't, it wasn't that he came to us, you know, to let us know about this and had a plan. I mean, it was just really a like, do, are you aware of this? It was just really a, a literal afterthought. Like yes. he just like, ah, just throw away comment kind of thing. Yeah. And how and, soon were you supposed to start treatment? Well, because my surgery was so extensive, frankly, I, um, the plan was that I would be healing for about four or five weeks. Um, and then I would start chemotherapy, but they were aware at this time, the team at GW, I mean, I didn't live there. My, my parents didn't live there. My husband and I had just moved to Seattle, right? So 
there was some discussion about whether we would be going back to Seattle, whether we would be going to New York. Um, and so they knew that I was not going to stay there and begin chemotherapy there. So I think they were trying to give me as much information as they thought I needed in order to, you know, go forward and take the next step. And they knew they wouldn't be following me. Um, so we did do that. We went to New York and, um, you know, started to. Did he come consult. back though? And did he come back and say, well, yes. here's, I've done some research. And here's <laughs> or, yeah. He's like, run away. Don't come back. <laughs> no, he came back and, you know, really had actually written out. Um, and, and at that time, you know, this was 1998. So he really said to us, um, listen, if you, if you end up staying here, here is a great place for you to go, a great fertility center, and they can help you. And then if you go to New York, here is the other place you should go. And these were really like the top centers in the country at that time. And, you know, so that was, that was interesting and, and also fortuitous that there was somewhere that we could go to in New York while we were doing our second opinions and figuring out, what the path of treatment would be. And honestly, my, my cancer was so rare and rare in someone, you know, of my age that it wasn't absolutely clear how it would be managed or what chemotherapy protocol would be used, you know, so there was still some ambiguity about, you know, the next steps. So, um, we did use that time. We did go to New York, um, and we did start to consult with, um, medical oncologists about, um, you know, the preferred course of treatment. And then we did at the same time meet with physicians at Cornell and, um, okay. and that was the fertility clinic they recommended. Yes, they absolutely recommended them. And it was interesting, you know, to learn, and I've learned so much of course, over the years that it's hard to tease out what I knew when, but, um, you know, that was a really premier facility and the typical time that you had to wait in order to be seen there, you know, was months at that time. And I have to say they were so accommodating and understood, you know, this was an emergency. I had this small window of opportunity and I needed to be seen right away. And, um, and they did that. So yeah, that was a great part of the experience as well. So what did they tell you? They said, you know, egg freezing or was that even an option back then? Or was it all about IVF and making embryos? Yes. So egg freezing was really not, um, you know, it definitely, definitely wasn't standard at that time. It may have been highly experimental. It was not something that was discussed with me. I mean, I, oh, I well, came in and I was married. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, I was married at the time and, you know, the standard kind of best, um, approach at that time was to do embryo freezing. And that's what was presented to us as a couple. And, and that's what we did. Interesting. So they did it that quickly though, too. Is that like. They, yeah, it was, it was old school in that, um, you know, there was actually some wrestling back and forth because at the same time that I was choosing to go there and consult there and understand my options, um, with regard to, to, going through a cycle and creating embryos, um, we had settled on a particular um, oncologist at Sloan Kettering across the street. So that was very convenient. And um, I felt like I was at these top, you know, world-class centers on, on both fronts. And he, there was some discussion back and forth that I couldn't wait. It was going to take probably five to six weeks, you know, for me to do the complete cycle at that time. They used to Downregulate your system, you know, with Lupron, and then and then start. And and they still do for a yeah. lot. I mean, yeah. So it still is. Yes. Yeah, so that. Yeah. Um, but I was, as I said, like still really healing and really underweight and really, um, you know, still like not, uh, wow. you know, in great shape to begin chemotherapy. And so I do know there was some debate back and forth. The oncologist did speak with some of the reproductive doctors, um, and I remember even speaking with the oncologist and saying, what difference does it make if it's four weeks, you know, to start chemotherapy versus five? I mean, so there was really kind of that give and take back and forth. And, and in the end, you know, I think he understood that 
that's what we really wanted and that's what we were going to do and that we had begun the cycle and we were going to see it through. So he... That's interesting though, because it shows that even the oncologists there, that fertility preservation was not on the forefront of their minds either as to what was an important thing for your future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, his first concern was as soon as we can, we're going to start, you know, this chemotherapy. And so, you know, there was that concern about, and I think there's just a lack of information about what um, a delay, especially of days or only a couple of weeks, you know, what kind of difference that would really make. And, and so of course they want to be cautious about sure. having someone put that off too long, you know? Sure. Yeah, no, that's understandable. But it's like, you're like, really a couple days, come on, you know? <laughs> I mean, at that point, I think I had started shots. So I was like, okay, we are no. doing this, you know? Yeah. So. And when you guys got married, were you like, we are having kids or were you just like, of course, you know, how would... How did you feel about that? Honestly, it was such a non-discussion. It never, I mean, I started dating my husband in college. And so we had only at that point though, been married for a couple of years and we were both, yeah. you know, starting out in our careers. So as I said, we had just moved to Seattle right. for his job and I had just started at a new firm. And so, you know, it was, it was just assumed and I'm sure, and I've talked to now so many people, you know, cancer survivors and just you know, regular people, um, who have wrestled with infertility. And I do think culturally, you know, of course it's something that I envisioned. And of course, you know, he was the person that I wanted to have children with. And I just, you just take it as a given, you know, but we hadn't really seriously started talking about that, you know, at that point. You you hadn't decided you wanted 2.5 children and the, you know, No, but I would say I was someone who always, if I heard a name, I would like bank that away. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there was always that kind of idea. Uh, I never, ever would have said I would choose not to have kids. You know, I mean, I would definitely, definitely envision that in my future for sure. Okay. Excellent. So did you end up, so you obviously went through this the, the embryo or well, the, the egg retrieval and what, what happened from there? So we went through, um, the, the whole cycle, which was onerous, you know, and I'm sure everyone out there knows and all the shots and things that were involved. And, um, but I have to say I was in the midst of that process going every day into New York city and having, you know, blood tests and things at the fertility clinic. And then also meeting with people, over, um, at Sloan Kettering. And so of course I was much more enthusiastic about my (laughs) fertility appointments and everybody was so nice and hopeful. And, you know, it just, it was a much more positive part of that whole experience for me because we were kind of thinking and talking and planning for the future. So, um, so I think that took the, the sting, if you will, out of those shots a little bit and made them a little bit more bearable. Um, when it probably helped in the long-term thoughts about the cancer diagnosis as well. You know, you think I'm going to, I, I'm going to kick this cancer and this is for our future for after this happens. Yes, it definitely did. And it definitely, uh, you know, I don't know if, if it made me change my outlook medically because frankly, my prognosis was not great, but it definitely gave me something else to think about and plan for and focus on in the middle of that time. And and embryos, did you end up with any? Yes. So we went through the whole cycle and we got 22 eggs. Oh, wow. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah, everybody was excited. It's good to have happy news, like going through all of this medically and then have like something go really well for that. It is. It is. And I can only imagine, you know, how hard it would be if it didn't go well or if a cycle was canceled or, you know what I mean? I did really feel I have this one opportunity and this has to work, you know? Um, so yes, we, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. (laughs) Um, we did, uh, I think that went as well as it could have honestly. And, and then we had, you know, some of those don't mature and don't fertilize, but we did end up with, you know, many embryos and, um, you know, and then it was funny because we were sort of in this situation where we were like, oh, okay, well now we have all these embryos. Now we've been planning and thinking and talking and throwing around names and, you know, really. And now we can have right. 18 children. Yeah, right? exactly. Now we can have 18 <laughs> children. But we also yeah. were thinking about 
wow, how are we going to do this? And when is this going to happen? And we did start to, you know, I was, it was such an acute time of illness for me. I mean, I was really, I had lost a lot of weight and just felt completely unstable medically. And so that idea of ever kind of carrying a pregnancy, um, you know, started to be complicated. And, and there was also this idea in terms of management of my disease, um, you know, of having frequent scans and, and having my body, if you will, sort of available. And there was something a little bit scary to me about the idea of even years out embarking on a pregnancy, knowing that this could happen or there could be a recurrence. And then how would that be managed? Or how would I even get scanned? How would I, I would, I think I started to feel if I were pregnant and felt I couldn't start chemo or couldn't, you know, take on more treatment, that would be a dangerous situation. And, um, as a result of that and those discussions, we started to think about surrogacy, which opened up a whole other (laughs) world. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And did you know anyone in your life kind of offering or how did you, how did you start? Um, I did have people around me, my mom, who was fairly young, but okay, was my mom. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, saying things like I could carry for you or, you know, and, and sort of, she was also like volunteering other people in the family who I think weren't, weren't as enthusiastic. Um, (laughs) so we started to discuss that and that seemed, you know, dicey. Um, and then of course we learned, which was utterly, utterly shocking to me that, you know, even though this medically and clinically was something that was doable, um, as an option that it was illegal in New York. And so, yeah, that was very shocking. Um, and I have to say, then we started to talk to people kind of in the reproductive community and get advice and get information. And all of that information basically led us to the same place, which was, you must go to California. This is where the law is the most settled. And if this is something you want to look into, um, we also were told not only do you need to go to California, but you should really embark on this as soon as you can, because this is a process that can take a long time and you have to find, you know, someone you're comfortable with a surrogate often, you know, has to choose you. And so that was a little bit scary as well, you know, and all of a sudden I have to say, I mean, when you, when you guys are asking me about like, were we planning on having kids? Were we talking about having kids? I mean, we weren't. And all of a sudden the urgency got so ramped up, you know, and I, I really thought for as long as I can be well, I want this experience. I want to have kids, you know? And so we, um, it really accelerated the entire process. So, for us. so how did, where in conjunction, cause obviously, you know, we, we kind of, we skipped a little bit in there. Like you, you obviously you had the retrieval, you created the embryos and then I assume you went straight into treatment, you know, for the, the cancer after that. How did, how did all of this lock step together? Are you researching surrogacy as you're, you know, taking, taking medications and well, how did that Yeah. Fall? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, so I will tell you, and I, I hope I'm not treading into controversial territory here, but I will tell you that I, today, looking back, I feel that having gone through the, you know, fertility preservation process, put the brakes on the, on my starting chemotherapy, which it did, right? So there was a slight delay there, which we talked about. And um, in, in the midst of that, we were continuously doing research, you know, and as I said, this wasn't, you know, sometimes, um, I've come to understand and learn in the cancer world, you know, if you have a particular type of breast cancer and you're at a particular stage, there is a very, um, kind of regular laid out course of treatment. And that just wasn't the case for me. And so this was so rare and all of the studies about, the efficacy, frankly, of chemotherapy and of different chemotherapeutics, it was really mixed. It was really, um, you know, 
kind of within the margins of statistical significance that there was any benefit of doing this. And so I think it was really scary because on the one hand, it was the only choice, right? And on the other hand, it didn't seem that it, it wasn't clear that this was really going to confer a survival benefit, you know? And so, so you're still debating whether to do chemo. Yes. I mean, we didn't realize that in the beginning. And, and so I do have to say, I mean, now knowing what I know, I do think if I had not taken kind of this side path to do the fertility preservation, I think our whole focus would have been on starting chemo as soon as we could. And we, I would have done that. And, um, but in the end, you know, it put the brakes on and we started to see how kind of muddy the waters were about this decision and about, you know, whether this was a good option. And I started to learn so much more about the side effects of chemotherapy, you know, which are many and are severe. And so that was, that was frightening, honestly. And, um, so in discussion then with our, with my oncologist, I have to say, we also got then in the interim, all the pathology back from my surgery. And that turned out to be, um, you know, very, very good in terms of, I had local lymph node involvement. Um, so that wasn't good, but the, the surgical margins, this is how they talk about these things, you know, the surgical margins were good and clean. And so there was some hope that maybe we could wait and, but, and not do chemo, right. And not do chemo. But I don't think there was ever a thought that the chemo wouldn't come. It was just Mm, that my oncologist felt when, yeah, it was about when, and it was, you know, that I did under the microscope, the, the, the cancer was very, very aggressive. So it had all the markers of being aggressive and it had broken out and it had been in these local lymph nodes. So there was, I think, a belief really that at some point we're going to see this somewhere else in the body and we're going to have to start chemo immediately. So you should do the fertility preservation and be ready, you know, and heal and be ready and wait. And so they put me on an aggressive course of scanning. So more frequent scanning than I would have had normally. And we were all kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, to tell you the truth. So it was always about when is this going to start? And um, the truth is, you know, we just kept living our life and I was healing. We were focusing on looking at surrogacy agencies. At a point, I returned to my job in Seattle and I transitioned and I was, um, you know, seeing doctors there and we were flying to California and meeting with agencies and so, yeah, things were a little bit more stable, but oh. it was always in the back of our mind that this would start at some point. Um, and it, it never did. Yeah. <laughs> it never did. Oh, oh. <laughs> so I was waiting. For yeah. that I don't know the story. So I was like, no. And then, yeah, oh, no, we had many, fantastic. many scares, you know, even, even CAT scans yeah. that were unclear. And then we'd have to go to an MRI or some other modality. Oh. And all of yeah. that went on for years. But, um, but simultaneously, we moved ahead um, with a surrogate. Wow! And how are you? How are you now? Are you? I'm good. Can, yeah. Cancer free for twenty years. I, I mean, free. it's been a while, right? Yeah, I just passed twenty That's years. Um, so yeah, it, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Okay, so back to a surrogate. So you found a surrogate in California, sounds like. Yes. So we interviewed at a couple of agencies and started talking to people. And I mean, I should tell you guys also, I thought, well, no one is going to choose us, right? Like I've just been diagnosed with cancer, you know, within the year (laughs) and who wants that? And so, you know, we came to understand at least the agencies that we interviewed with, you know, we understood that the surrogate will read your, you know, reads profiles of couples and things and then chooses. And so we just thought it was unlikely that this was going to happen, but I have to say it happened very quickly. And we started to get, you know, we got a call from the agency that we decided to go with. And they said, we have someone who's very interested in meeting you guys. And so we just started right down that road, you know, Um, and again, I mean, we had the understanding, you know, in the world of infertility, I mean, things are not guaranteed by any stretch. So we did know this could take a long time. It could take several transfers. It might not work, you know? So we also had that, you know, thought going on. And, um, 
the truth is, I mean, we were matched very quickly. We started the process very quickly. We had embryos, you know, flown out from New York. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, did they fly? Is that how they go? Does I someone, I'm just curious. Does someone like hold the tank and like fly first class? I don't know. I always think we should have like a FedEx commercial <laughs> or something, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. awesome. Flying with your embryos. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, so we did the transfer. Um, the very first transfer, um, and they, you know, transferred three embryos and then, yep. And then a few months in, we found out, we found out right away that the surrogate was pregnant and then we didn't find out, um, you know, until a little bit further yeah. in that it was in fact twins. And were oh, you wow. ready for, for triplets if that was the case? Like, oh, triplets. I mean, I guess so. We were a little <laughs> worried about that, I will tell you, but, um, you know, we had pretty open discussions with the surrogate and with, um, you know, the doctors. And so they were pretty clear, like, this is what we're thawing. This is how this is going to go. And she was, um, you know, very adamant about not being open to reduction. Should that be the case? And so, you know, we were, we were all understanding kind of what, what the possible outcomes could be. I mean, that being So you were said, ready for up to six is what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, thank goodness they didn't. They had sort of, you know, started to scale that back, right? In the number that were thawed and transferred. And so, um, but, you know, two of the embryos, they did show us, you know, looked good, if you will. And, and mm-hmm. the one like didn't, didn't look so great. So I think the doctor was pretty, mm. um, you know, he, he pretty much had the understanding that I think at most it would be two. And so, but you never know, you know? And, um, so yeah, we got the news that, you know, we were having twins. Exciting. (laughs) Yes. So it was very exciting. So, so you're flying back and forth to California and you're still dealing with your diagnosis at this point though, I assume like they, because you said it went so quickly. So you're dealing with lots of your own medical appointments, dealing with surrogates, medical appointments and, Yep. Did you go back and forth and to working. California and working? <laughs> and working. Right. Um, well, yeah, we had gone we had gone back to Seattle. So I had gone back to work part time. And then, you know, yes, we would fly back and forth to some of these appointments. And I think once we found out though that we were having twins, it became clear to us also we had no family in Seattle. We had no network. We had nothing set up. We were in an apartment. We weren't, you know, in a position to be taking this on. Um, and so, you know, at a point as it came closer to the girls being born, we, um, you know, I did give notice at work and we left and we moved back to New York to be close to family. And we, you know, bought a house and started nesting up and got ready. Got it. So very nice. Yeah. That changed everything. (laughs) Right. It does. The babies changed everything. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And so did your surrogate, I mean, did she have any, she have any complications? Did you have any scares there? I mean, that's always the fear, right? You're, you're now worrying about two people's health through this. Yes. Um, she had been a surrogate before and she had previously had five children of her own. Oh, wow. So yeah, she was, you know, really comfortable with being pregnant. She worked throughout her pregnancy. Um, and we would visit with her and visit with the family and, you know, she was great. She, um, she did great. The only scare I would say we had was, um, you know, there was some early labor. And so I did fly down for that and we were waiting, um, you know, for a potential early birth. And the girls did end up then maybe a week later. Um, she actually went into, you know, full labor. And so they were born at 36 weeks, which is, um, you That's know, so great for twins. Yeah. For twins. And good for you for going, <laughs> going out there and being there. Yeah. I wanted to be there. We absolutely didn't want to miss that. And even my husband then at the last minute, you know, the day before when it was actually happening, he, he came also. And so, yes, our goal was to get to 37 weeks. That was always the goal. So it was a little bit earlier than we had wanted, but they did great. I mean, the babies were never in the NICU. I mean, they were strong and healthy and yep. 
So everyone That's did great. Fantastic. Yay. Healthy babies. Yay. <laughs> so when did your career change to, you know, from doing intellectual property or trademark work and then to switching to this area where you're trying to help others who have been in this situation? Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and you would know, right. I mean, once I got back to New York and I was, you know, with, with the twins, I really thought, you know, um, naively, I will go back and find a firm in New York, you know, after a year or so. But, uh, you know, as I said, I was still having follow-up appointments, um, you know, at Sloan Kettering, I was still being scanned. There was always that concern, you know, still hanging over my head. And I had had certain complications from my surgery. I had, um, a condition called dumping syndrome uh, sometimes where I, would, <laughs> I know that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. What is that? That that oh, is no. like when all you're almost like instantly dehydrated and oh. you feel dizzy. And sometimes when people have certain bariatric surgeries, they have this. And I would just, you know, be living my life, but then I would feel acutely, acutely ill and have to lay down and you know, and often it felt like I'm sure it feels, I think, like a blood sugar issue. And so I would eat crackers and I would have to just kind of wait it out. Um, so that was scary. I mean, there were a few times when I was back in Seattle working where I went to the hospital because it was so concerning what I was feeling and yeah, feeling. That scary. Yeah. So, and then you worry that something else is going on, you know, so that sets right. off a whole yeah. other chain of tests right. and things. Um, so that Oof. was still going on. So, I mean, needless to say, I wasn't going back into the cutthroat New York, you know, legal seen any anytime well, soon. And I can only imagine taking care of two kids. And if you're alone with two young children and this happens to you, how scary it's gonna yeah, be. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, having family, having my my mom, you know, close by, I mean, she was an immense help in the early mm -hmm. days. And yeah, the feeding yeah. schedule alone for anyone who's had twins, you know, they were they were early. And so we were um really on a strict schedule in the beginning of um, you know, waking them every few hours and feeding them. And, um, so, you know, that it, it's pretty labor intensive, especially that, you know, first year for sure. Um, so yeah, I did not go back to work. Um, and then in terms of my own kind of career transition, I would say probably at about two years in, for some strange reason, I started to field a lot of inquiries and calls from, you know, family friends. And I want to say like friends of friends of friends, like someone yeah. would, <laughs> I know, you know, hey, like something, I know someone who's been through this. You could talk to her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know? And so I think it's strange too, because I having felt pretty isolated as a young adult with cancer and I really didn't meet anyone in that process, you know? And so I would go to the hospital for my checkups and blood tests and CAT scans. And I would be by myself in terms of, you know, age and things like that. I didn't really have like a support group. Yeah. I didn't have breast cancer. I didn't have kind of a connection to any other patients. And, um, and I was told all the time, like, this is so rare yeah. and this particular cancer is so rare in someone your age. And the funny thing is then I started to get these calls and connect with other people, you know, and hear more and more stories. And so people were reaching out to me just as an individual, you know, as a lay person saying, oh, I heard this happened to you my son is getting married and his wife was just diagnosed with Hodgkin's. Can you help us? You know, that kind of thing. So, and can they, can they do oh, this? Can wow. they create embryos? You know, can you talk to them? And so it just seemed to be happening more and more. Yeah. And for me, I started to do, you know, just research sometimes on the internet, like someone might be in a different location. And so I would say like, Oh, maybe you can talk to these people or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, um, right. and in doing that, I, at one point came across an organization called Fertile Hope and they were like, again, fortuitously in New York and they were having a big event, like, I don't know, a month later. And I said to my husband, like, I cannot believe that this exists. You know, this is exactly what I've been 
in and talking about. Right. You're like, and I wish I knew about this a few years ago. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think what I knew immediately was this did not exist. Right. Because Ah, I never could find information. Got it. It was that new. Yes. It was so new. And I said, oh my gosh, this is like what I wish had been there. Right. And so, um, I went to that benefit in New York and I started talking to people there and, um, and it was big, it was a high profile event. I mean, Lance Armstrong had been there speaking and everything. And, um, yeah, so I just thought back back before. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I thought, wow, this is like a huge organization. Right. And, um, anyway, I, I left my name and I talked to some people there and they said, you should talk to the founder of the organization and, you know, we'll, we'll share your information. And she had like, by the time I had summoned the courage and stuff, you know, she was gone. And so I just left my information and she followed up with me and I went, I don't know, a week or so later into the city and met with her. And then it became apparent, like she has just founded this organization. She is the the Mm. one you know, (laughs) the one person. And, um, yeah. And so I started to volunteer and then as we built the board and built, um, you know, funding, um, I was, I ended up being hired then as the second employee. And so that was gosh, back in like 2003. Um, Yeah. So anyway, I I mean, from that time forward, I've really been involved in this work and trying to help, first of all, raise awareness about this issue so that more cancer patients get the information that they need in a timely fashion um, so that they can make these decisions if they need to. And then um, most recently, um, you know, at our organization, we've been sort of drawn into um, this access world. And really the last kind of barrier, I'd say, and most kind of, um, you know, fundamental barrier has been the lack of insurance coverage and um, for preservation. Because most people can know something about egg freezing or making embryos, but just being able to afford it and often really quickly, right? Just because if you find out you have cancer before going through treatment, you have to do this. Absolutely. So yeah, I would say from the time I started working at Fertile Hope in 2003, um, you know, if you searched for fertility information in relationship to cancer, you weren't really getting much information at all. You wouldn't through like the major organizations, you wouldn't even find this. You would find information often about maybe even sexual side effects or some language that, you know, it could put you into premature menopause if you had chemotherapy, but there wasn't really detailed information about how this was going to affect your egg reserve, you know, or your future ability to have, you know, a genetic child. And so I think Fertile Hope, our main focus was really on that, on getting the word out and on also, you know, going to the cancer community and really saying to them, Hey, you know, people are surviving now. You know, there was such a focus and I felt this personally, I felt this myself. The focus was as if there was a fire, you know, it's an emergency, there's a fire and we're going to take care of this. And that was the commitment from the oncology team. And they were devoted and they, they were very concerned about that. And that was, that was really the you scope. You just care about surviving, not yes. about anything else in right. your future life. Yes. Yeah. And I think what's happened over time is that, you know, survivorship has improved and there has been a little bit of a step back from this ultra aggressive, you know, emergency treatment, um, that has been a little bit more holistic, right. And looking at, um, dosage of, of different drugs and what the side effects are going to be. There's a whole study, um, you know, that's gone on into what's called late effects. So there are numerous, numerous late effects of radiation and chemotherapy, um, not only on fertility, but, you know, on, on all aspects of your body and health, um, long-term. So I think there's been you know, the pause button has been hit a little bit. And so I do think that's um, been a really, really positive change. I think what has not changed, though, is now 
people may get that information or may understand, as you're saying, you know, what egg freezing is or that that's an option. And then they are told the price and they, you know, it's just for some young patients. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, I've talked to so many patients and they are so excited and they do a consultation and they understand, you know, that they can physically, you know, do it. And then they are told, come back tomorrow and we can start these medications. And we haven't talked about this at all, but the whole process has, has um, sped up to a certain extent. So on an emergency basis, you can probably get through a cycle in, in 10 to 14 days, you know? So oh, I didn't wow. know that. I thought you'd still have to do the standard kind of three weekish um, regime of medication. No, there's to, something, yeah, there's something that's called random start, um, you know, uh, protocol and you can really just go right to starting medications wow. to mature eggs if you if you have that more kind of collapsed time frame that you have to work with right it's urgent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so but they want a check up front exactly <laughs> exactly and what's kind of the average price tag across the country you know i mean you see a range I, it varies a lot geographically i would say probably anywhere from like 12 to 20,000 dollars and so when you see those numbers sometimes they include uh the cost of medications and sometimes not and medications themselves are a few thousand dollars so um, I would say when we talk to people, you know, numbers probably in the range of $15,000 is probably average. Right. And no financing, so, of course, and, you know. Right. And when you personally went through it, were you shocked to be like, wait a second, now I, this is all out of pocket, no insurance coverage. I have to pay this huge amount to go through IVF? Yeah, I was. I have to say, um, thankfully, knock on wood, you know, my husband yeah. and I were young, we were working, we were both you know, out of grad school, we had good jobs. Both attorneys. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, well, he wasn't an attorney, but he had great benefits. He was at a big company. And so on the one hand, I would say I did find the price of the services very expensive, but I had not been really in the medical world at all. And I would say even where I was being seen for my cancer treatment, I mean, we would meet with the finance people there and they didn't take HMO coverage. I mean, there were definitely, you know, there was a certain amount that we were always just writing checks for and paying out of pocket and then submitting to insurance. And, um, it was shocking, but we were just, you know, determined to do it. And so we were able to do that. Um, I think it would have been absolutely devastating to, you know, get that information and then not be able to do it. And and the finances be the, the barrier part. Totally. And it is, and it is. And I talk to people all the time and that was, and you know, I think what people underestimate too is as high as those costs are for people who are seeking infertility treatment, you know, because it's really the same, um, cost essentially. Um, there's no time to plan. So it becomes even more expensive because you've got this window truly where people have to decide, are you going to start tomorrow or the next day? And you need to come in with this check. And so it is really, really daunting. And on top of that, um, there've been a lot of new studies and interest. I don't know if you, if you guys have seen, but about um, what's called financial toxicity and the financial toxicity associated with cancer itself is extremely high. Oh, I have, I have not seen that. So I mean, what there's is, studies yeah, what that is look that? at um, something along the lines, I think I read of 40 something, 42% of cancer patients end up declaring bankruptcy. I mean, this is really, oh, wow. you know, there oh, are other wow. reimbursed costs that you don't have. So even if you have insurance that's covering you know, a lot of your treatment costs, you end up with thousands and thousands of dollars of, of, you know, in deductibles or in extra costs or things that are uncovered, you end up often people, you know, have to leave work or, and then of course that can impair, you know, your insurance coverage. And I can, I can think of even the simple things, uh, the simple things like you have to pay parking Mm. charges every time you go to the hospital or you have to pay for lunch or meals out or things that you wouldn't normally have paid for in other places. I I can definitely see like, especially even, even those minor that seem minor. Yeah. And they really add up if you are that sick and you are not working. Right. So, I I mean, often we've talked to young people who have, right 
all of a sudden have all this, these childcare costs and things like that, you know? So yeah, it really, really adds up. So I think for someone who is newly diagnosed to be contemplating, you know, something like fertility preservation and perhaps having an awareness like that they're going to leave their job, that they have these other costs and things are so uncertain. It's really hard. It really is hard to say, I'm going to outlay this money myself, you know? So yeah, right? I know. I was like, so and the, the right pause is real because the <laughs> heavy, the weight is so huge. So now, so now my understanding is it's about yeah. 16 states that do provide some kind of um, coverage when it comes to, to infertility. Um, and yes. I know you guys are doing a lot of work to try to, yes. to get the information out there about why this is a positive thing and um, to let, let all parties be informed. Um, I know I was reading recently for the New Hampshire bill, this justification, one of the reasons they were talking about was that um, because of the financial issues, people make certain decisions that actually make it even more financially burdensome for states and medical systems. So one of the examples they gave is that when people do go through IVF and they don't have insurance coverage or a lot of money, um, they often feel more pressured to transfer like two embryos or three embryos yes. versus one thinking like, you know, we'll get two children or maybe there's a higher rate or higher, you know, higher rate of the pregnancy right. happening. And then ultimately there's twins and there's a much higher chance of twins coming early and a long NICU stay and this this other kind of bigger financial burden on insurance in the system where people think, oh, I don't want my insurance to go up by having to cover your your infertility. But really, I, it, they were making the argument that it's better for everyone to have this this coverage. What are what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I totally agree with that. And I have to say, I, I think I alluded to this earlier in in our discussion. Um, you know, we work really in close concert with other organizations. One of which is um, Resolve, the National Infertility Organization, and so they have really looked at this and do put forward those types of arguments. So we have been privy to some of those conversations, and we are always trying to put forth some of these cost offset arguments, if you will. And so you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think our belief is that if people had coverage, they could make better medical decisions, right? Purely medical decisions and talk to their doctor. And, and you know, and so the example you gave, I think is really appropriate in and people do feel pressure if they only have a certain amount of money and they've done a cycle and they, you know, they want to transfer more embryos because then they would be done, right? They don't want to come back and start again or pay again or even pay to have another transfer. So you get people making kind of maybe a little bit unwise medical decisions in the hopes that they can save some money. And I would say, um, this also happens in the fertility preservation context. And so we have talked about that. And there are new studies um, that have shown, and they've typically focused on breast cancer patients. So you've got a certain percentage, about a quarter of breast cancer patients are diagnosed premenopausally every year. And so they've looked at that group, right? And said, is fertility important to you? Is parenthood important to you? And so you see studies that first of all show that about a third to a half of premenopausal breast cancer patients will say that fertility comes into play in their decision-making about treatment. And so sometimes people will be seeking different chemotherapeutics that are less toxic, you know, to their fertility. And so that could be a compromise that maybe wouldn't necessarily be the best choice. Um, the other thing is there was a, a fairly new study um, done that looked at tamoxifen initiation and adherence. And it really showed this. It really showed about a third of those premenopausal patients would either not um, start tamoxifen or go off tamoxifen to try to get pregnant because they were so concerned, you know, about losing that ability. Now the recommendations are, wow. you know, to stay on oh, tamoxifen wow. for 10 years. Oh wow! And so I think for patients, even if they came out with some fertility, I mean, even if they were only partially compromised, right, by their chemo, then if you're going to add 10 years of tamoxifen and not getting pregnant, then the likelihood is they've given that up, right? And so, um, 
you know, so what we have tried to argue is there is a potential there for people to have worse medical outcomes because this concern is not addressed, right? If they're not allowed to, to preserve eggs and have that kind of safely put aside. Um, and then, yeah, people, not only is that kind of pushing some bad medical decisions and medical outcomes, but there are costs associated with that. So we try to put that forward to insurers, you know, like if, if a patient becomes metastatic because they didn't do their tamoxifen because they wanted to have children, you are going to bear those costs and those costs are quite high, you know? And so that, that is, I think a parallel argument to, you know, what you were talking about, about in the the realm of IVF. And, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we hope that that carries some weight. Some weight, yeah. I was really fascinated because you had sent over a little bit of information to us beforehand. And I know because I deal with insurance all the time that insurance is sneaky and they're going to try to do anything in their power to decline things, right? And I was actually really fascinated. I had not caught or even thought through the fact that they were denying people because they've had cancer. They aren't technically yeah. infertile, yes. right? I mean, because they, yeah. they're they saying that you hadn't been able to attempt to even achieve pregnancy yeah. for 12 months. And so they were saying, you don't even qualify. And I, I, I'm i shaken having read that. And so, I mean, I, it, it's stunning. And I love that you guys are yeah, working on addressing that. Yeah, I think that's a totally that, great so. point because I think you guys mentioned just a few minutes ago that 16 states have some sort of infertility coverage that's mandated. So, I mean, some of that, in some of those states, that's really only about diagnosis and some maybe really low-level interventions. And um, in some states, it goes as far as, you know, guaranteeing access to IVF, which, you know, are the procedures that people would need for fertility preservation. I think it's particularly heartbreaking when we talk to patients who have IVF coverage, maybe through a private employer, right? And so they think, oh, I have this insurance in place and I can do this. And they, they start down that path, um, you know, with a fertility clinic and then the insurer kicks that back. And it's exactly to your point. They will say, there's no diagnosis here of infertility. Like you have not been trying. And so if you don't have that diagnosis, and you can't just wait a year to start your cancer. Exactly. Treatment. Exactly. Ugh. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's funny and it's funny <laughs> the terminology that you use about being sneaky, but I mean, so I think sometimes doctors will submit, you know, codes and they will submit for patients. And they, if that insurance is in place, it doesn't get questioned and it sometimes gets covered. But if someone really peels that back, um, we definitely, definitely talked to patients who said, I thought I had IVF coverage. And they do, and they have IVF coverage, but they're not trying to get pregnant, right? So that is really particularly, yeah. I think, troubling. So what can kind of your regular person do who's like, this is really unfair, this is heartbreaking for people to find out they have cancer and then be in a situation? I mean, what can they do? donate to the Alliance for Fertility Preservation? Can they call their senators? What, yes, always. What's the best thing? <laughs> All of those things. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, it's always a matter of, you know, bandwidth. So, I mean, resources are always great. Donations, we will never say no. We, we would, that's, that's great. Um, that allows us to, you know, hire more people and do more. Um, but yes, in terms of taking action as an individual. I mean, you can definitely write to your own legislators and, and express, um, you know, solidarity on, on this coverage. Um, and some of the studies that have, have looked at this. So when bills have been pending in certain States, um, often a state will do a fiscal analysis and you will see, um, especially for fertility preservation itself for cancer patients. I mean, the numbers across the whole population are very small. And so even though it sounds like a lot and it is a lot for an individual, right, to pay $15,000 out of pocket, um, when you spread that that across a whole pool of insured people, I mean, then you're talking about really pennies, pennies, pennies per member per month they, is how they look at it. Um, so it, the cost actually is, is quite small and bearable. Um, so yeah, any support for that kind of legislation. And, you know, we always say too, like, I mean, our organization, we are not trying to get involved, frankly, in legislation, although that is sort of the path that has opened up most, uh, recently. I mean, our real goal is however 
we can get this coverage is, is what we would want. So if that means going to your own employer and talking to them about this, um, if that means, um, you know, somehow achieving that through some sort of administrative change, regulatory change. I mean, we've, we've been talking with departments of insurance, things like that. So any way that we can get this coverage in place so that that safety net is there and ready to go, um, for patients, that that's our goal. Yeah. Well, that's, um, incredible, important work. And we, we appreciate there being people like you out there who are, who are fighting for those who, you know, already have cancer, but also would like to have a family or even for those who don't and have to, to struggle through this. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, thank uh, you. Thank you so much. Yeah. We really appreciate you sharing. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, the good news is you guys that, I mean, it has been a trend lately. So five states have, um, passed laws in the past two years to make sure this coverage Yay. is in place. Yeah. New Jersey's still pending. Do you want to give a shout yeah, out? Shout for out. Okay. New yeah. Jersey, come on. Shout you can out do to it. Connecticut, which was first, then Rhode Island. Yeah. Go Connecticut. Then Maryland. Um, then Delaware passed actually a comprehensive IVF law that includes fertility preservation. So that was the first kind of new IVF coverage that was enacted in a long time, in more than 10 years. And then um, Illinois passed last year, which was quite exciting. And New Jersey is pending. And now that, you know, the new sessions are starting, there are at least 10 states currently that have fertility preservation uh, bills that are are active. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So That's people can wonderful. go to our website. You can find out what states are in play. And absolutely, if you live there, I mean, to reach out, to reach out to us, um, but to reach out to your legislators in support of those bills is is really, um, would really be appreciated. Great. Okay. Everyone, go to their website. Do go. it. Talk to, <laughs> talk to your legislators. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for covering this issue. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to Joyce for joining us. I think um, it's such a such an incredible um, help to those going through this to know that there are resources out there and people like Joyce providing those resources and fighting for them to to have choices and to to look beyond the the cancer and to to know that there are options to still having that chance of a family um, after you're and, you're able to. And it's such a consolidated place too. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the the real thing is that in a situation like that, everything is happening to you so fast. You know, we can sit here and go, oh, we'll just go Google it and all that. But, you know, that can take hours and hours and days and days to find, you know, useful information. And, you know, she and what they're doing is a really great consolidated resource to really help you start that search when when you're faced with a really catastrophic situation. So, you know, because we we usually are joking at this point, but really it's a pretty serious thing. Um, (laughs) We seriously do encourage you to obviously go to iTunes and and leave us a a wee little review or reach out to us. Uh, We always want to hear from people. We we love to hear your stories. So if you want to give us a call at 303-997-1903, we would love to hear your messages, hear your feedback, hear what you have to say about anything we are doing and uh, anything that you would like to hear in the future. So thanks so much for listening. 